Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to take you against the grain for another two hours for this week before we go running off into the weekend. And uh, as usual, John, looks like the Biden administration might be announcing another big uh, outlay for <sighs> Ukraine. I'm going to guess maybe we'll get the official word at 6 p.m. Pro- what do you think? Probably since it's a uh, Friday and uh, mm-hmm. they're not going to want anybody questioning their decision to spend yet another $800 million uh, without any congressional debate whatsoever. Congress isn't even in session to debate this. Not that they would debate it right. anyway, even if they were. But yeah, I think your guess is right. Six o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. This, of course, is coming from some Reuters reports from yesterday that uh, it was this was being set up and could be announced as soon as today. So, yeah, mm-hmm. there we go. Um, and of course, speaking of Ukraine, you know, we have this back and forth over uh, Zaporizhia and the huge power plant there yep. uh, that is getting really disturbing. And we're going to talk a little bit later in the show over uh, about you know, how to interpret the reaction or the lack of reaction to this, yeah. right? We've been talking about this all week. Um, Russia and Ukraine continue to blame the other for shelling the power plant. The power plant, the territory of the plant has been under Russian control for quite some time now, uh, right? Several months. Ukrainian staff who operate the plant have stayed on. Some of them allege that that's because they haven't been given the opportunity to leave. Um But recently, you know, you have both sides saying the other is planning some kind of provocation at the plant uh, to cause a disaster or appear to cause a disaster. Uh, You have Ukraine saying Russia is going to cut the plant off from the Ukrainian energy supply. Uh, You have Ukrainian intelligence, what I can see, only Ukrainian intelligence and then Ukraine's state-run energy company saying yesterday that uh, Russian staff had been told to stay home. Everyone had been told to stay home today except for operational staff. I don't actually have any update on whether that indeed happened. And it's getting late in the day in Ukraine now. So maybe a day is going to pass without any of these uh, provocations materializing. But, you know, on one hand, you have the sun issuing a map of of radioactive fallout yep. that, that could happen if there were some kind of disaster at yep, this plant. That's right. Which seems very scary. But if you dip into European newspaper, and I don't know every major European newspaper, right? So sure. I'm not going to say that this is some kind of exhaustive list, but like I took a poke around and there are not a, like a lot of them don't even have anything about Ukraine on their front page. Mm-hmm. Then if you look at like Deutsche Welle, they, they're all over this potential disaster. Um, but like, Politico.eu, the EU Politico has really nothing about Zaporizhia. Mm-hmm. A couple of French and German papers didn't. So again, it's like, you know, a nuclear disaster at the biggest power nuclear plant in Europe seems like it should be getting some serious attention. You'd think. And but Joe, Joe Biden is just coming back from vacation, right? Yeah. Nobody's talking about this. And then, I mean, and then you'll see, are, but it's just like, is this, is this, a, is this serious or is this crying wolf or is this some combination of the two? Cause I don't think even if it is crying wolf and, and much ado about nothing, certainly one thing you don't want to be desensitized to is the possibility of nuclear accidents. That's right. 
That's right. Especially one that has the potential to be so catastrophic. You know, the the thing is, we we really truly don't know what's going on there. And so your point is well taken. This could be either either a few elements of the media seriously overreacting, or it could be the majority of the media seriously underreacting. Um, with that said, I really, really hope that that Antonio Gutierrez and uh, and Recep Erdogan were able to talk to uh, to Volodymyr Zelensky and President mm-hmm. Putin even to try to get both mm-hmm. sides to back off because you know I can't imagine a scenario where where it's worth damaging or destroying a nuclear power plant. No, and also, I mean, the people who are going to suffer most are going to be people there in Ukraine, but also Russia's also ne- Russia, right next door. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. So we, we'll have to see. But like there is a, you know, there, there's obviously a danger anytime you have shelling around a nuclear plant. Right. But there's mm-hmm. also a danger in uh, there's a danger in height as well. Right. And making making it so difficult to understand what's a real threat and what isn't that people uh, aren't able to make informed decisions. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We've got a bunch of um, news stories out of East Asia that I want to get into. We'll talk about some um, big protests in South Korea that were ignored. Hey, here's something I learned just today, John. So I'm sure you saw the headlines a couple of days ago. Uh, say, saying like the UN, UN reports on forced labor in Xinjiang, right? You right. saw all those oh, headlines? Yeah. yeah. Did you ever actually go to look at the UN report? No, I did not. Yeah. So I didn't either till this morning because I knew I was going to be talking about it later in the show. And I'm going to mention this uh, again. So forgive me. Um, but if you read the headlines, you would think a UN special rapporteur went to Xinjiang and issued a report specifically about forced labor in Xinjiang. Right. That, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> this is a report about uh, vulnerable minorities being exposed to different types of labor exploitation. What? And so the Xinjiang region is one that gets a mention in this report. But so do countries from everywhere else in the world. Oh and so, again, it goes to show how political all of this is. I mean, sure. Yeah. You want to talk about what the what the report says about what. uh you know, what they have some evidence for in Xinjiang. Absolutely. But I saw zero headlines about forced labor in the Brazilian Amazon or chattel slavery in Mali and Mauritius or any of the other uh, labor abuses that this report details. It is incredible. I genuinely, if I had not gone to the UN website and looked at the document, I would have thought this was simply a report about China. Yeah. Yeah. Good I think that's Lord. pretty funny. I just yeah. assumed it was a report about China. Yeah, because that's what the headline said. <laughs> you know, that is very funny. Uh, and speaking of China, it looks like uh, Xi Jinping might travel to Central Asia next month wow. uh, to go to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting where he might meet Vladimir Putin, might meet some Central Asian leaders, might uh, have bilateral meetings with the leaders of India, Pakistan, and Turkey. So that will definitely be interesting to keep an eye out for. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, he's, he's far more active, I think, than, than he has been in recent years. You know, well, he's been hiding out from COVID. Well, that's true too. 
Um, yeah. I was talking to uh, a contact of mine uh, yesterday, and he, he said something that was so simple and so impactful about uh, about Chinese foreign policy. He said, we're freaking out because the Chinese have built these man-made islands in the South China Sea. But then the Chinese don't freak out that we establish a permanent base at Guantanamo, Cuba. We, mm-hmm. we freak out because the Chinese reach out to the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea and, and all these small nations. But then we don't expect... We don't tolerate even any complaints when we reiterate the Monroe Doctrine. Mm -hmm. You know, this this two-faced foreign policy that we have and that we've had for centuries, uh, people just don't have an appreciation for it. And and there's a double standard that we perpetuate all around the world. Yeah, I think we are going to get into that a little bit more. Hey, John, do you want some good news real quick? That would be nice for a Friday. I know, right? Um, This is a new report uh, on physics.org, but we have talked about PFAS before, right? These forever chemicals that we still don't know very much about, but the more we learn about, the more we understand that they're pretty dangerous and you shouldn't really Mm -hmm. be exposed to them. And, oh, unfortunately, once they leach into the atmosphere, they just stay there forever. It's right there in the name. Well, um, two chemists at Northwestern University say they actually have uh, an inexpensive, low-energy process that will cause two major classes of PFAS compounds to fall apart, leaving behind only benign end products, according to this article on uh, on that report, Uh, which is terrific, right? So they say... You know, even though just a tiny, tiny amount of PFAS can cause negative health effects, they don't break down. We wanted to create a real world solution. Past uh, methods for breaking down PFAS, in my very limited understanding, involved really high temperatures, and they just weren't particularly practical to implement. Mm -hmm. And they say uh, they have now figured out through detailed look at the chemistry of these compounds a much easier way to get them to break down into much safer substances. So, you know, not Good. not necessarily great news That's for okay. those of us who are already fully impregnated with these chemicals, yeah. but like maybe for future generations, this isn't a permanent problem. Maybe there is a solution. I, I thought that was so. cool. You know, there are um, indigenous people in the Amazon who um, are even testing positive for these uh, forever chemicals. It's literally mm-hmm. everywhere in the world. Everywhere mm-hmm. you can't escape it. Yeah. So any any hey, good also, news is. I've got is a pun good. for you. Do you want to hear? Please. Immortal Beach. Am I right? <laughs> did you see? Did you see these shark attack reports from Myrtle Beach? Myrtle Beach. I saw it, and and they're they and they're nasty. Eye. And in the yeah. same day, no less. Yeah, they caught my eye because, of course, I was just yeah, in you were just Myrtle there. Beach. Um, but yeah, two, two people attacked on the same day. One woman who survived had to get hundreds of stitches. Apparently, um, her grandson, her grandson saw the whole thing. I mean, it seems like everybody's fine. Doesn't seem like it was a, it was a very big shark. Uh, but no, you know, and it got them both in the arm, but the, but the, it it got a good chew. The, the pictures were pretty graphic. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised all the stories are leading with these like very gruesome photos. 
crazy. So that was cool. Um, we also have, uh, you know, and I don't know how important this is, but it seems like it's sort of worth a mention. You know, the, the post is still doing its, um, in-depth series on the, the run-up to the war in Ukraine. Yes. And so it started with like how great the U S intelligence was today's, uh, today's edition is about how bad it's about how bad Russian Russian intelligence intelligence was was. or about a, a a disconnect between yeah. Russian intelligence what and a the Kremlin. Phony, what a phony idea for an article, because how in the world would they know what Russian well, intelligence was predicting? Come on. Yeah, I mean, unless, I mean, this is the thing they're saying. They're saying that they they weigh inside there. They hear everything. They see everything. So, you know, yeah. See, but the, the interesting thing that I think is happening also is um, the Post is reporting on criticism of Volodymyr Zelensky that was sparked by a previous story um, when they were talking about how uh, the U.S., try as it might, couldn't get Ukraine to take these invasion threats seriously. And it quoted Volodymyr Zelensky as saying he didn't share these warnings with the population because he didn't want Ukrainians to flee the country and trigger an economic collapse. That's right. And he said, you know, if I had communicated that, we would have been losing $7 billion a month since last October. And when Russia did attack, they would have taken us over in three days. And so Zelensky is defending that decision. Um, and according to the Post, he is, as a result, facing a wave of criticism unprecedented since the start of the war. This is the, the Post's framing of it. Uh, Ukrainians are saying he deprived them of the opportunity to choose to leave or to to go somewhere else or to make preparations for a war zone. He, they are saying he deliberately left civilians in harm's way as a result of this decision. There are people saying it should be considered a crime. Um, I think, you know, I, I think you can come to different conclusions sure. about about that decision. But I do think it's interesting that we are getting more and more criticism of Zelensky specifically in in Western media, yes, this obviously it's a first. Is not going to stop the flow of money to the war. Nope. Um, but you know, someone someone has decided that some criticism is allowable now, and a lot of it seems not directed at Ukrainian fighters, not directed at other members of government, but specifically at Zelensky and some of the decision making from the very top. Mm-hmm. And that's you know probably worth keeping an eye on. I agree with you. I agree. Something that absolutely. Bears watching. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of other real quick uh, issues. I know that, uh, and actually, we we can address these with our with our next guest. But uh, you know, you and I have criticized Brian Stetler uh, over the last year or so. What? <laughs> I forgot to put that in here. I forgot. But yeah, goodbye, reliable sources. It, just like that. Just like uh, yep. flipping a switch. And and yep. the the CNN announcement was just so generically positive that it makes you think that, of course, there's some grisly backstory. Uh, you know, you don't just yeah. fire him today and say that his show's not going to be on day after tomorrow and say, you know, he was so great. And he came to us from the New York Times as the top media critic, and he became even bigger than the top media critic. And uh, we really wish him well because he's so great, but he can get the hell out right now. You know, what is there that? There was some discussion that this might be about uh, Stetler has been critical specifically of one investor in discovery 
which is a, a big part of the right. new conglomerate that owns CNN. CNN. Uh, right. I think John Malone. I don't know anything about this guy. No, nor, um, nor do I. But that is sort of where at least NPR is trying to direct it, that like maybe he's maybe brave Brian Stetler said the wrong thing about the wrong big money bags guy. Oh. I don't I don't know. I don't know, but that is definitely what they are are trying to put forth. And I wanted to say real quickly, too, that Facebook has taken down Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s uh, Facebook page. Uh, They they said that he has repeatedly provided inaccurate, uh, misleading information on vaccines. That's a whole separate debate. But, uh, you know, they uh, whether you like JFK Jr. or not, or RFK Jr. or not, Uh, this is, uh, the new censorship. This is something that we're seeing all the time now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've got a fantastic show and, you know, being on a Friday, this is really the way to cap off the week. We have Aaron Good, who's going to start things off for us. Then we're going to go to KJ No, who's always terrific, Gerald Oliver. And then to finish off the show, we've got a short politics segment and then news of the weird that I think everybody's going to enjoy. So stay tuned. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There is much debate in Washington these days over the role of the FBI in American politics, most notably because of the raid this week on Mar-a-Lago. I always add an R in there. Mar-a-Lago. Democrats have long believed that former FBI Director James Comey personally took down Hillary Clinton by announcing an investigation into her handling of classified emails just weeks before the 2016 election. Now Republicans believe that the FBI, perhaps on behalf of its deep state partners, is targeting Donald Trump to, at the very least, bar him from running for president again and, at the most, to send him off to prison on espionage charges. Governmental agencies have gone after presidents in the past, of course. Just look at Richard Nixon in 1974. But is what is happening to Donald Trump unprecedented, as the Republican Party says? And why is the Biden administration increasing funding by billions of dollars for the Internal Revenue Service, of all things? Why does the IRS need to hire hundreds of armed police officers who, as their hiring ad says, must be comfortable using deadly force? We're joined by Dr. Aaron Good. He's a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon, and he's also the author of the book American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. Welcome back, Aaron. Hi, John. Great to be here. Great to have you. Aaron, you're an expert on the deep state in modern America. Former CIA director and NSA director Michael Hayden yesterday tweeted that he believed the Republican Party is the most, these are his words, the most dangerous, nihilistic, and violent force on earth. Can you imagine that? And he compared pro-Trump Republicans to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That's absurd, of course. And Hayden is a well-known neocon. But what does a statement like this mean 
in a historical perspective. We've certainly seen periods in American history where we've had successful populist politicians like Huey Long, Father Coughlin, George Wallace, to name a few. But for someone as important as Hayden to say something as provocative as what he said made me wonder if there was historical precedent for it. Can you compare what we're seeing in politics today with any other period in American history? I think that it's what we're seeing now is kind of a reverse version of Watergate in some respects in terms of the historical position of the United States, because water, the way that Watergate played out was uh, there were scandals between your sort of deep prevailing political establishment, your deep state or the establishment, and Richard Nixon. Uh, and it wasn't for the reasons that are obvious to people uh, today. I mean, uh, Nixon was, as Noam Chomsky will say, the last liberal, and he did things like put in price controls during a time mm-hmm. of inflation to mm-hmm. to deal with uh, you know economic problems, and that was not something that didn't make the elites happy on the sort of commercial economic capitalist side. And then on the militarist side, he angered people. Uh, by going to China, and uh, they were afraid that there would be big budget cuts to the Pentagon as the Vietnam War was winding down, and uh, detente with Russia and arms control also scared these forces. And uh, with you had in Watergate, uh, really the press and these other factions of the American establishment collaborating to get rid of someone Uh, who they did not find acceptable, but having to resort to sort of strange methods to do so. I mean, when you look at what was on the smoking gun, the so-called smoking gun tape that Nixon had to resign over, it's a small and kind of ambiguous uh, transgression. Not that he didn't commit a lot of crimes, but he's running an empire, which is uh, you know, the president is the is the, is a presiding over an empire, and an empire is a criminal enterprise. And so, of course, <laughs> Nixon committed a lot of crimes. And really, as the aftermath of Watergate and the Church Committee hearings, mm. the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the Pike Committee, you know, revealed so many things about the FBI and the CIA crimes that were far more serious than anything that was on the smoking gun tape. Absolutely so, true. I, I think that what we're seeing here is similar to what Nixon experienced. And the Washington Post, by the way, more or less admitted something to this effect uh, early in Trump's presidency. I didn't save the link for this, but I remember reading in the Washington Post, they wrote, no president since uh, Nixon has tried to take on the CIA. And I felt that like that was very revealing, especially coming from the Post, which is you know more or less a CIA Cut out, you could say. Yeah, right. um, and and so this is. Uh, I think that what what we're seeing here is when an the establishment of the you know in a in the polity or political system or even probably in a smaller setting like corporations or wherever when they have to get rid of someone but are you know for for reasons that they can't publicly state then they will try to find any reason to do so. Uh, it seems like you know these impeachments with over that Trump suffered over um, you know this business with Ukraine now, which all seems quite strange, mm-hmm. and this recent uh, FBI raid seemed to be uh, the establishment looking for any kind of technicality or pretext to um, make Trump uh, ineligible to run for president, as as best I can tell. Now, if there are more serious crimes that have been committed by Trump, like if you were, for example, selling nuclear secrets to the Saudis, sure. Well, that's that's quite a different thing. And uh, it, but uh, but at this point, I would require rock solid confirmation of anything said by the FBI, you know, and all these other forces. 
And I would just add that Michael Hayden saying that the Republican Party is the most dangerous, nihilistic, and violent force on earth um, is uh, problematic, <laughs> very much so, because the the most dangerous and violent force on earth is, I'm sorry to say this, the United States uh, as, as an empire. The U.S. Yeah. empire has killed uh, so many people around the world uh, through things like the uh, you know the the war in Southeast Asia, the Iraq War, um, the genocide, a genocidal slaughter of of maybe a million, maybe three million people in 1965, uh, just who were tortured to death, um, and the uh, you know the the structural economic conditions that the U.S. imposes on the world, where like 25,000 people. Uh, die a day from like starvation and preventable diseases and such that could be mm-hmm. uh, totally wiped out with a fraction of what we spend on the Pentagon. So you can't even, it's hard to even wrap your mind around how deadly the U.S. empire is. Uh, but this part of having being an empire and having so much wealth and power means you can sort of create a magical never world uh, that, that people perceive as reality because you control mass media, et cetera, et cetera. So people, Americans just don't have any context for what the their own country's history is. Yes. And I, I'm not saying we're particularly bad. It's just that empire itself is a criminal enterprise and the U.S. happens to be the most powerful empire in history. And so those forces have found a home in the, the, the American state. And uh, that's something that's we've right. got to deal with if we want to look at reality. I think that is right. Uh, It wasn't too long ago, Aaron, when a person with ideological differences with the two major parties could run for president as an independent. Look at George Wallace in 1968, 1972, 1976. We had John Anderson in 1980, Ross Perot in 1992, 1996. We had Ralph Nader in 2000 and 2004, even Teddy Roosevelt. When he grew apart from the Republican Party, ran for president as a member of the Bull Moose Party. Why is there such an affinity for the duopoly now? Why do people seem to care so much about the two major parties when in the 19th century there were dozens of viable parties? And if you didn't like your party and you didn't necessarily want to join another one, you just made your own. And that actually worked. Why don't we have that now? Well, they're they're so aligned, and they serve so many of the same interests that the uh, it almost does seem to be a kind of a pro wrestling setup now, where they're they're pitted against each other in different ways. I mean, the Roe versus Wade thing is one example where, for the people that are that are the biggest funders of the Republican and Democratic parties, like abortion isn't going to affect them one way or the other. No. These are they have gotten the uh, management of politics down to a, an art, and on the fundamental issues of economics and foreign policy, there's not much difference between the parties. Um, so I, I think that that's a, a big part of the equation, that there's a lot of collusion between these parties because they're ultimately owned by the same you know, actors. So if you've got, uh, it's uh, what, um, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard mm-hmm. are managing essentially all of American capitalism, yeah, or at least the majorities of like all major, in all major sectors of the economy that they're managing for on behalf of other rich people, you're talking about a real concentration of, of power, and these people kind of run both parties. Uh, as kind of sock puppets, and um, the also the third parties are very weak. I mean, I I don't think that for when I want to understand politics or history that I would like want to listen to say for that reason Jesse Ventura. Okay, but 
he would have been a candidate if the Green Party had picked him, had yeah. chosen him, who would have actually made a difference. And they did not in yeah. 2020. They went with a, a, a kind of a, a candidate who was guaranteed not to um, really gain much traction and cause much, raise much of a, you know, disrupt the system, let's say. Yes. So I, I think that if that's your most popular third party and they seem to be more concerned, it's more, it seems more like a vanity project for like, um, you know, leftists, uh, anti-establishment leftists of a certain stripe. Like, I don't, I don't think they really care about, uh, actually in, impacting the system, uh, best I can tell, because I don't understand what happened in, in 2020 when it was the perfect time. Uh, we had the two most ridiculous Truly. candidates running against each other. One was, uh, you know, seems to be suffering from dementia and has always been an establishment guy. I mean, that's kind of his defining characteristic. I'm talking about Biden, of course, and then Trump, who is a, a game show host, you know, um, and a, and a, and a guy who's a, a sort of crook who inherited a bunch of money from his slumlord father. Right. Uh -huh. I mean, this is a, yeah. so this is it's total embarrassment for the, the U S that this is what it's come to, that these are the two best people that we can get, but that's where it is. And it's uh, nobody really, nobody stepped in to at least disrupt the, the system. And so uh, some of the blame has to go to the, uh, you know, the green party yeah. here, I think. And yeah. where do we go from here? It's uh, it remains to be seen. Let me ask you a little bit more about the deep state. Uh, Two of Julian Assange's attorneys and two of his friends filed a federal lawsuit earlier this week against the CIA for spying on Julian while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. The CIA had wired the embassy for both audio and video, and they even taped Julian's conversations with his attorneys. This seems like a, an egregious violation of his civil rights and civil liberties, but the Supreme Court, as it turned out, has ruled in the past that it's not illegal to do this when the target is not an American citizen. Um, do you think it's possible for Julian Assange to receive a fair trial in the United States? Um, I don't think that uh, it's possible. You know, anything is theoretically possible, but uh, I think that he would be likely tried somewhere around Washington. Yep. And Eastern that District whole, of Virginia. His, his jury would probably be, uh, I mean, at this point, it's frightening to think about how even bulwarks against the tyrannical possibilities of the state, um, like the the trial by jury, can be manipulated. I mean, I have to imagine that this is kind of an aside here, but I think that the sophistication of uh, surveillance and, and being aware of, of people's political and ideological uh, perspectives is going to be even higher now because you have everybody being tracked online and, and so on. And it's, I just imagine that it, it, he would be pulled from a pool of like defense contractors. The jury would yeah. be pulled from yeah, a pool of yeah, defense that's contractors, not an exaggeration. CIA consultants, sure. so on. And they would probably even among those group, the state would probably be given the benefit of like knowing everybody's idea, you know, political ideology to begin with. So uh, in short, no, I, I don't think that he would get a, a fair trial here and I mean the the charges themselves and his treatment so far and the fact that they attempted to assassinate him mm -hmm. at one point shows that this is not um, th that the prosecution is not really interested in the rule of law or or justice or anything like that that it's just an exercise in defending uh, the regime yeah the way they've gone after Assange it's really it's the mask is falling off the US Empire in a Seems lot of ways and people are paying attention. Let's talk for a minute about the Espionage Act. I once worked with a woman at the CIA um, who 
was having an affair. I mentioned this on the air the other day. She was having an affair with a former CIA officer who was then working for CNN as a commentator. And she told him something that he then repeated on the air that happened to be classified. So, so the CIA did an investigation. They figured out it was her. And today she would be charged with espionage very, very clearly. Uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 793A, five years in prison, failure to secure classified information, and uh, providing national defense information to any person not entitled to receive it. What they did to her, and this was only in 1997, this isn't too terribly long ago, is they put a letter of reprimand in her personnel file. They suspended her without pay for four weeks. And she was not allowed to be promoted for two years. But today, you would be looking at a major felony prosecution. Now, those prosecutions began in the George W. Bush administration uh, with charges against Tom Drake, Bill Binney, Kirk Wiebe, a couple of other people. Why the dramatic change between 1997 and, and 2002 where something that had been an internal personnel matter, matter is now all of a sudden a national security slash espionage case that appears on the front pages of the papers. Why the change? Well, I think that it's political and leaks and such have always been political in the leaking of classified information. I mean, if we want to talk about uh, we were already talking a little bit about Watergate and uh, the plumbers were called the plumbers in popular consciousness because they were going to fix leaks, right? Like people like Ellsberg leaking things to the Times. But in actuality, they were looking for uh, even more so for material themselves that they could leak. They wanted to get dirt on people like sure. from Ellsberg's psychiatrist mm -hmm. so that they could leak those things to the press. And uh, you you have the leak as a mode of political warfare in Washington and uh, this is there are those who are privileged and allowed to leak things uh, yep. that are not technically supposed to be leaked if they have the sanction of the almighty. And there are those who uh, are not. And so something like this woman probably that you're talking about probably fits into a gray area where it wasn't something that they wanted leaked. Right. You know, inappropriately for political reasons, but it wasn't somebody who was leaking something to damage the. That was damaging to the, uh, you know, the, the deep state, as it were. So I'm, I would guess that that's why she gets a slap, a, a micro slap on the wrist and they, they just went on with it. But, you know, even under even under Bush, after these things, there were there was, a, you know, many of the uh, reports on the Iraq war WMD were inappropriately leaked by mm -hmm. people like Cheney and whoever else. And we can only speculate as to who else. Um, and this was. You know, nothing ever came of that, just like nothing ever came out of their blatantly illegal Iraq war. So um, it, it's this it's just an, it's another area where you have these laws in place that give the state the uh, prerogative to either enforce or not enforce these certain provisions. In general, the the Espionage Act uh, is a is a kind of draconian authoritarian uh a law and uh, it just empowers the state in an unconstitutional way. And uh, it's hard to, beyond things like nuclear secrets and, and so on that actually are very uh, sensitive and important, the majority of state secrecy exists to uh, pr protect 
the empire from yeah. embarrassed for PR reasons yeah, for uh, right. to protect them from embarrassment, especially the exposure of uh, of crimes. And that's such a huge part of what the U.S. does day to day that 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 if you understand that, that'll help you to understand why the we've seen the explosion in classification uh, in in over the last decades because you have to you want to reflexively cover everything up because and classify it because. It's better. It's safer to do that than just try to figure out when you are or are not like breaking the law, for example. Yeah. So yeah. this is just the Espionage Act should be repealed. It's a it's an unconstitutional uh, monstrosity, and uh, the majority of the people that have been prosecuted under it, I, uh, to my knowledge, are people who are whistleblowers or are typically doing things that we would think of as positive if you care about the Enlightenment and democracy yeah. and uh, so on. Yeah. Uh, l- let me ask you a follow-up about that, then. The, the FBI's search warrant for Mar-a-Lago used, as I said a second ago, Section 793 of the U.S. Code as the justification for the raid. That's the provision in the Espionage Act related to the failure to secure classified information. It's the provision that has been used against a dozen whistleblowers over the last 15 years. Um, and now it's, uh, it, it's apparently... Uh, being used against Donald Trump without endorsing Donald Trump. Um, do you think anybody should be charged with espionage under 793? It's it's almost entirely reserved for, for contact with the media. What was used for the Rosenbergs and Robert Hansen and other traitors, you know, in more modern U.S. history um, has been Section 794. That's different. What about 793? Should there be a 793? Well, I, without knowing uh, all of the minutia uh, you know, within the act itself, uh, I tend to think that the Espionage Act should be scrapped in total. And if there are an, a very narrow uh, set of circumstances under which people could be cro- prosecuted for related crimes, uh, you know, things related to declassification or state secrets, then that should be spelled out uh, very explicitly and very narrowly. And it should have a high burden of proof as to uh, the, you know kind of malicious in, in, intent and effect yeah. of the of the of the people doing it, uh, and it should be reserved for things of the highest uh, you know gravity. I mean things like nuclear secrets, like I said, or yeah. biological weapons secrets, or the locations of um, you know nuclear or stockpiles, other things like that. Uh, so I. I tend to think that they that it needs to be radically overhauled and, and changed and uh, so we if Trump is guilty of other um, you know if this is related to more serious things like Trump selling nuclear secrets sure. and that's that's one thing but if it's just this class this business of him being in possession of these files it's very strange and you have to somebody I heard someone else talking about this saying like well it's not likely that Trump, was carried, you know, carried all these documents over to be, you know, by himself. He has like people working with him and That's so right. on. So it, it yeah. would be interesting to know how exactly he came into possession of these documents and how exactly the state was aware that he had these and when they became aware. Uh, because it almost, you know, it there are it, it seems almost a little bit like Watergate, where potentially was he like somehow trapped in a certain way or tricked in a certain way. I just have a hard time believing that. You know, of all the documents in in Washington, which is beyond human comprehension, really, the the number of things that are there, that Trump is somehow 
so immersed in this in this aspect of the presidency that he is, you know, schlepping these these important documents that he has located and, and, and you know, sort of studiously reading all of these documents. Like, I just find the whole thing strange. Uh, although maybe maybe that it will be explained over time, like the the significance of all this. But it's 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 weird, and the law itself sh- is is problematic. And we see how it just gives the state the ability to uh, go after its chosen targets uh, as, when it wants to. That's right. Well, Aaron Good, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Aaron Good is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's also the author of the excellent book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we have a bunch of stories from East Asia to get into. We have news from South Korea, China, and Japan, and so I think we'll just go through these stories by country. Joining us for this conversation is KJ No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. KJ, I have so much for you today. Great. Uh, Happy to be with you. Let's start with South Korea. And this is something that happened last weekend. We haven't talked about it, and I thought it was worth covering. uh, These pretty big protests in Seoul to protest uh, the U.S. and South Korea launching uh, some of their many annual war games. Thousands of people, according to reports, took to the streets in Seoul, chanting things like dissolve the Korea-U.S. alliance and things like this land is not a U.S. war base. Um, But there was precious little mention of it in any Western media. Um, And so I wanted to ask you to just tell us, you know, what these protests were about and and what they uh, what they demonstrate. But before that, I will say the BBC found time to mention these protests in a very short story accompanied by a one-minute video. And it said, South Koreans hold anti-war and anti-North Korea protests. It says, anti-war activists in Seoul have protested against ongoing joint military drills. A second rally saw around 100 conservative South Koreans hurl water balloons at a poster of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So it gives equal weight to thousands of people marching with banners and chanting in the streets of Seoul and a hundred cranky conservatives throwing water balloons at this picture of Kim Jong-un. And the only thing you see in the video is the anti-North protest, which I thought was pretty funny and pretty dishonest. Uh, So so tell us about what people in Seoul were saying about these these war games the U.S. and the South Korea have launched. Well, the first thing is, about the BBC coverage. I mean, this is kind of like a a model case of how Western propaganda operates. Exactly as you point out, a few dozen cranky conservatives throwing water balloons is framed, literally framed, in the same way as 
uh, a march of six to 10,000 people taking to the streets, occupying the streets, occupying a major plaza and demanding that the U.S. Uh, that U.S.-Korea military exercise be canceled, that there be an end to U.S. ROK military alliance, and that all U.S. troops be expelled from South Korea. So this is huge. Uh, this was organized by KCTU and the National Democratic Labor Alliance. Uh, and there's some good coverage by Danny Haifong with uh, Do uh, on his Left Lens program. But definitely, this is uh, a huge protest, and it's, uh, I think, a harbinger of more to come. This uh, military exercise, OC Freedom Shield, will start on August 22nd. And we don't know how many troops were involved, but usually it involves tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of troops. It's incredibly destructive of the environment and of soldiers. Uh, and it is literally a rehearsal for invasion and decapitation of North Korea. So it, you will see uh, significant escalation uh, with, uh, you know, in a North Korean response. It's also usually time to coincide with the harvesting period or the, or the rice planting period in North Korea. And so it creates food insecurity by forcing uh, North Korean soldiers who are usually involved in, in farming to divert away into military activities so that the U.S. can blame North Korea for, you know, food insecurity and mistreating its people. So, yes, right. a huge protest, uh, and, and it's uh, extraordinarily, uh, you know, uh, venal of the BBC to portray things in this uh, propagandistic fashion. And there was another story out of South Korea that I think should also help us understand, you know, what is the country that we are defending as a great example of, uh, of democracy here, as opposed to, you know, the terrible North Koreans across the 38th parallel. Um, it's a story about the leader of Samsung getting a pardon last week from the president of South Korea for bribing a former president of South Korea. And to me, you know, this is sort of a small story. It's mostly the Wall Street Journal types that report on it. But I feel like there is probably something to, to understand here about how, you know, our great ally, South Korea, uh, is still a country in many ways ruled by super wealthy dynasties who are allowed to operate outside the law. And so I wonder if, you know, there's a little bit more uh, significance to this story than just one, uh, you know, mega industrialist getting a pardon. Yes, I think uh, it speaks to the political economy of South Korea. It's essentially a corporatocracy. Uh, and uh, this, um, the 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 leader of South uh, of Samsung, Lee Jae-yong, you know, is going to uh, be released by this new administration. He was put into pr prison for bribery related to uh, the corruption of Park Geun-hye, uh, the previous uh, uh, president. So he goes in. Uh, he, he's corrupt with one president. He's imprisoned. And then he's released by the next uh, president who is uh, part of the same party. So it's a revolving door. It speaks to the utter and total corruption of South Korean politics. But more than that, it speaks to the way in which corporations rule and dominate uh, Korean politics. In particular, Samsung, you know, sometimes people refer to South Korea as the Republic of Samsung, you know, according to certain estimates. It's responsible. Uh, it 
uh, its conglomerates are responsible for about 17% of South Korea's GDP. And it's possible for a Korean to spend their entire life, all of their consumption, uh, inside the Samsung bubble. And so it speaks to the just extraordinary interpenetration of a powerful chebel, powerful corporations with the Korean political state. All right, let's let's talk now about China because uh, the UN came out with a report into repression in Xinjiang and said it had found evidence of forced labor among Uyghur, Kazakh, and other minority populations in the region. That is what you would think if you were reading any headline about this report at all. All of the Western reporting on this made it sound like the UN had gone specifically to Xinjiang looking for forced labor and written a report on that topic. And only if you go to the UN website and look at the actual document do you see that this is a report about contemporary forms of slavery affecting persons belonging to ethnic, religious, and linguistic minority communities. And that in this document, in addition to this references to Xinjiang, uh, you also see uh, chattel slavery in Mauritius and Mali mentioned, and forced labor in Brazil and Argentina and Guatemala, and exploitation of labor in Canada and Italy and Persian Gulf states, and domestic servitude in many places in South America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very long report about um, allegations of and evidence of a variety of labor exploitation, and yet what is 100% fixated on by, by Western media is the couple paragraphs about Xinjiang. And so I think that is what a very interesting aspect of how this is being covered. And then two, of course, it says um, in China, you have these state-run vocational training centers and labor transfer systems where rural agricultural laborers without work are placed in other roles. The Chinese government says these are poverty alleviation measures. Uh, the UN says, Yes, but they don't always seem to be voluntary, and the level of surveillance and allegations of abuse and coercion make us conclude that minority rights are being violated through these programs. And so, you know, I, I do not live in a world where I consider that China could possibly do no wrong. So, you know, this is plausible enough to me, although a very far cry from these allegations of genocide that you always hear. And, you know, I know, KJ, you also might not agree. So I wanted to ask, you know, what you think about this report, but also— what you think about the extremely myopic way that the report is being uh, covered in Western media? Well, you know, once again, these are, you know, parad paradigmatic examples of propaganda and spin in this ongoing information war against China. You're absolutely correct. You know, this is a 700-paragraph uh, global report of which only two paragraphs uh, are about China, but it's made out to seem as if China has been shown or proven to be guilty of some horrendous uh, violation. Well, I think it's very important, as you've done, to read the actual document itself. And it's extraordinarily curious because it says that, you know, there's, there's slavery here, there's slavery there, there's violations here, there's violations there. And then when it comes to China, it says it has an extraordinarily kind of circumlocutous language, which, you know, the author himself is Japanese, but even by Japanese standards, it's extraordinary. He says, the special rapporteur considers 
that indicators of forced labor pointing to the involuntary nature of work rendered by affected communities have been present in many cases. That's an extraordinary kind of, uh, you know, circumlocutus uh, uh, diction. I mean, he doesn't conclude anything. He con- he considers that things, evidence pointing to something. And then he, you know, mentions, uh, and then he mentions, you know, uh, the criteria over which he's done that. But by those criteria, you know, there are 11 criteria that are considered indicators of slave labor. He's only mentioned four. And, you know, by the same criteria, you know, Wells Fargo Bank or Amazon, you know, violates easily more than those. And, of course, um, he does not mention the Japanese slave labor or U.S. labor, which is a considerable lapsus in this report. Remember, uh, we have good evidence by the Global Slavery Index that considers that there are 400,000 people uh, uh, enslaved in the United States on any given day. Not a mention of that. And so I kind of looked back to his footnotes and asked myself, you know, where did he get his uh, quote-unquote evidence and you can see that all of it has been evidence that has been thoroughly rejected by international communities. Uh, these are sources by Avian Zentz, by Vicky Shu, um, of um, Vicky Shu from CSIS, from the Uyghur World Congress, uh, from the Uyghur Human Rights Project. These are all partisan political operators that are trying to fabricate this unbelievable <clears throat> allegation of genocide. So this report is is wrong in so many ways. I think I think the way in which it most interestingly contradicts itself is that at the end of the report there are suggestions for preventing and ameliorating uh, conditions of slavery, and those conditions that it actually recommends are the recommendations that it exactly criticizing in China. That is to say, it suggests uh, that there should be special measures taken for uh, labor, uh, special measures for vocational education, uh, temporary measures to enable the employment and the engagement of ethnic minorities, etc. So it actually undermines itself in its own recommendations by recommending to the global community the very measures that it criticizes in China. Yeah, I mean, it was really unbelievable that you would never know from the reporting on this report that it contained any information about any country other than China and wasn't just focused on China. And honestly, you just think, how how dumb do you think we are? But it, you know, this kind of reporting really rests on uh, rests on the hope that people will not have time to click through to get to an original document and are going to take uh, the, the, the media's presentation of that document as, you know, an accurate synopsis. And I think it's one of the reasons why Americans are rightfully pretty disappointed in their media these days. Um, KJ, we're coming up on this this one o'clock break, but I did want to ask you, you know, I have some more um, questions for you. I did want to ask you, you know, what China's reaction has been so far to the U.S. Uh, announcement of more formal trade talks with Taiwan. So if you wanted to give us your initial thoughts on that, and then we'll return to it on the other side of this break. Well, the, uh, the Chinese have been 
are very, very unhappy because they see every one of these actions as more salami slicing and more undermining of the uh, three communiques and the foundation of uh, U.S.-China relations, which is that Taiwan is not a sovereign state. It's a region. It's a province of China. Both Taiwan Island and China and the United States and the UN and the world community acknowledge this. So to continually accelerate and, uh, you know, increase these kinds of uh, interactions and and trade uh, formulations is uh, considered by the Chinese to be yet more examples of U.S. duplicitous behavior towards forcing or creating a de facto uh, independence of Taiwan, which is just another code word for saying that Taiwan will be uh, Taiwan Island will be a U.S. imperial outpost against China. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be that you you can go one way or, you know, you're either with us or against us. You can go one way or the other. There's not an independent path for Taiwan here, right? It's either uh, you are bound politically to China or you're going to be bound politically to the United States. We're going to go to this uh, one o'clock break and come back on the other side to talk about uh, what, what might be a kind of interesting political reckoning happening in Japan following the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Uh, there was a recent poll that I found very interesting showing a real lack of support uh, for any kind of state funeral for Shinzo Abe. And so we're going to get into what Japan um, is, is actually dealing with right now and what kind of public reckoning there might be. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a quick break and come back to talk more about East Asian politics. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we continue to be joined by journalist KJ No, who's an expert in the political economy of East Asia. I had one or two more questions for KJ, especially on this, um, what might be a sort of public reckoning in Japan over the ties of its leadership to the Unification Church founded by Sun Myung Moon and which is often derisively referred to as the Moonies. Um, I saw a social media post yesterday that says that a recent JX poll of Japanese public opinion says only 34% of people polled want a state funeral for Abe, 59% are opposed. Abe, of course, was assassinated by a man who says he was motivated by anger over Abe's ties to the Moonies, which had, I believe, de defrauded his mother. Um, and so it seems like uh, there is a little bit of a new appetite for digging into Abe's ties to this church and to the ties of uh, the rest of his party. And, you know, while Western media will say that many people view uh, the Unification Church as a, as a dangerous cult, they don't really explain how explicitly political it has always been, right? Or the sort of history of its founding right after the Korean War. And so I wonder if you can tell us, KJ, one, you know, uh, do you think Japan is having a real moment of, of 
wrestling with the influence of this church on its um, political life. And uh, what are they going to find if they keep uh, digging into these ties between its political leadership and the Moonies? Well, you know, it's a very curious thing because the Moonies and the Japanese LDP had strong connections in the 1960s. They were kind of uh, anti-communist, fascist allies. Remember, the Moonies were essentially a branch of the Korean CIA itself, which was an annex of the U.S. CIA. And during the Park Jung-hee dictatorship, they had tremendous power and influence with the Eisenhower, Truman, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan administration. In fact, uh, in the Nixon administration, uh, they actually, uh, you know, lobbied to prevent the impeachment uh, of Nixon. So uh, that is, you know, the kind of historical background. But what's curious here is that the Moonies uh, are not simply anti-communist or rabid cult anti-communist. They're also ethno-nationalist zealots, and they see Korea as the Adam country or the superior country, and they see Japan as subordinate to Korea, which will not go over well with the Japanese leadership. But in the current moment, what is happening is that Yoon Sogyal, the Korean prime minister, is trying to uh, create a Japan-Korea-U.S. trilateral alliance against China. This is the current geopolitical chessboard under which all these different uh, cultural and religious phenomena are playing. The simple fact is that Shinzo Abe is probably most deeply connected to the Shinzo, Shinto Association for Spiritual Leadership, sometimes called the SAS. Nineteen members of his cabinet were members of SAS. Uh, and so there's this kind of strange jockeying with different cults inside Abe's cabinet. Uh, the, I, I would say that Shinzo Abe's involvement with the Moonies is largely a legacy of his grandfather Kishi's involvement with the Moonies. And certainly, according to reports in the Japanese press, the individual who assassinated Abe had a grudge against the uh, Unification Church, which he then took out on Shinzo Abe. Does this signal that there is some kind of deep reckoning or shaking out of the uh, Abe government and the LDP with the Moonies? Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I think that there is uh, some truth to this. The Moonies have been powerful in Japan, but at the same time, they've always kept a very, very low profile. And the key cult and the key influence on the LDP is actually the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership. Uh, the Moonies are largely peripheral, uh, except in the sense that they speak to the deep enmeshment of anti-communism and South Korean and Japanese fascist uh, of political leadership. I guess it will be interesting to see if, you know, an investigation into the influence of one uh, extremist religious group leads to investigations into the influence of, of other extremist religious groups. That would be, uh, you know, maybe these breadcrumbs will actually lead somewhere more relevant in the immediate moment. Uh, that was scholar, educator, and journalist KJ No. KJ is also a member of Veterans for Peace. I was delighted to be able to talk to you about these stories, KJ. I've been waiting all week to get to them. So thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. We are going to go ahead and switch straight into our next couple of conversations. Um, I want to get a little bit more into what exactly is going on with France and Mali and perhaps France's uh, involvement in counterterrorism operations in the rest of Africa. I want to talk a little bit about how the West, Western media at least, is, is wrestling a little bit now with the results, the political results of its policies in Africa. And of course, I want to talk about the crisis at Zaporizhia and also how it's been reported so far. We're joined now by French-American journalist Gerald Olivier. He's the former editor-in-chief of Spectacle du Monde, and he is now an editor and writer at Atlantico and a communications and media consultant. Gerald, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Good afternoon. Let's start with uh, Zaporizhia, which is, you know, uh, potentially a, a very terrible disaster in the making and is being treated very strangely, I think, in um, in media reports. We have, of course, Russia and Ukraine trading accusations that the other is planning a provocation at the plant. Um, Ukrainian intelligence and Ukraine's state energy firm yesterday said Russian forces had told all of its staff to stay home today with only operational staff to be allowed in. I have not seen any reports today as to whether or not that happened. Um, Ukraine says Russia is planning to cut the plant's power and disconnect it from Ukraine's energy grid. Um, Russia has been in control of the territory that the plant sits on for several months now with the Ukrainian staff who manage it, retained there. Uh, the plant continues to be shelled, with both Russia and Ukraine blaming each other for the shelling. And you've had everyone, you know, including the UN Secretary General, saying, hey, it seems to be very dangerous to be shelling around a nuclear plant, and it would be really great if we could find a way to stop this. Um, this is the biggest nuclear plant in Europe. An accident or some kind of sabotage there would be terrible. And as I mentioned to John uh, to start the show, you know, the, the newspaper The Sun today has a map showing all the countries that could be affected by a radiation leak. Uh, it mentioned 13 different countries, many of them in Eastern Europe. But I don't see a lot of fear in European media of this outcome. And so, I mean, it's impossible for, for us sitting here to know what is actually happening at Zaporizhia. But it seems like on one hand, you have the very real danger of an accident. And you also have the very effective tool for, for scaremongering and media manipulation. And I just wonder how, how responsibly this is being treated in this reporting. You know, I feel like if there is crying wolf going on, it would seem to potentially obscure a very real danger to, to the entire world, but most particularly to Europe, Russia, and Ukraine. Um, and I don't know if this is what taking that possibility seriously looks like. So I wanted to ask you what you think about, you know, the uh, the actual crisis, what we know of it, and then also how it is being handled. Well, you know, you, you, you've said most of what needs to be said on the issue. Uh, <laughs> it's an extremely scary situation. Uh, it's a very tense situation. Uh, and I won't say that both sides are playing with fire because they already are and they're rather playing with radiation. But um, I, I, I'd say two things. So far, uh, we've 
fortunately only witnessed a, a, a war of words, number one. Number two, at least the real issue at stake, of course, uh, is actual control of, of the region. As you mentioned, uh, the plant has been under Russian control since, I believe, March. The Russians have kept it uh, operating. It provides electricity to most of southeastern Ukraine. Uh, and of course, it is of vital importance to whoever is going to uh, control uh, that area uh, when this when this war uh, is over. And and obviously, uh, since um, Ukraine has not been able to retake that area militarily, they're trying to obtain through diplomacy and forceful, scary diplomacy, a demilitarization of that zone. So they are raising the ante by, uh, uh, shall I say, playing with, with shelling an area which is extremely dangerous. At the same time, the Russians themselves have been playing a very dangerous game since, even though uh, I'm sure you're familiar with a video that has been circulating that showed uh, Russian military uh, uh, trucks uh, and, and different uh, um, uh, weapons that were stored inside the plant. And obviously, the story is that Russia has been using the plant as a shield for some of its uh, military material over there. So both sides uh, have been playing with potential uh, extreme danger for the region and beyond. Everybody knows since Chernobyl that radiation clouds don't just stay over one area. They tend to travel wherever the wind blows them. So it's extremely dangerous for the rest of Europe. The positive side from what I've heard and read today is that uh, there was a phone call between Emmanuel Macron and Vladimir Putin uh, in which um, um, uh, Putin seems to have agreed to bringing uh, inspectors from the uh, International uh, Atomic Energy Agency over uh, to check the situation. And at the same time, there was a meeting yesterday between Mr. Zelensky and uh, UN Secretary General, uh, where Zelensky agreed to also bringing some form of inspector over that area. So mm -hmm. if, if a, a form of demilitarization or, shall we say, uh, uh, agreement for uh, this is non-potential non high-intensity conflict location. If that could be reached, it would be for the best. And everybody is hoping that we don't have an accident between now and when that actually happens. And we did see Russia and Ukraine, uh, you know, find a way to come to an agreement about uh, getting starting shipments through the Black Sea again. So, you know, I think for, we, for the there is some Syria. reason to hope, yeah, that they can find a, uh, a, a way to achieve some kind of diplomatic breakthrough here. Uh, the other issue on Ukraine I felt like worth mentioning today is that we're told that the, the U.S. is planning another $800 million dispersal to the country, um, which could be announced today. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, what impact these outlays appear to be having on the war itself and what impact you see them as having on American domestic politics. Well, the thing is, as as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Macron and, and uh, Putin spoke today on the phone. Uh, it was the first time, I think, that they had spoken for the past three months. And uh, the French president has been keen on keeping uh, diplomatic channels open 
with uh, the Russian leader. Uh, he's been very highly criticized by some people within Europe uh, for doing so. And I think what he's doing is actually uh, the smart thing, uh, since everyone knows that uh, military solutions are never very much lasting solution. But having said that, uh, Europe uh, Macron, Germany, and others are still member of NATO, uh, and NATO is still led by the U.S., and NATO is squarely on the side of helping Ukraine withstand however long that war effort will take to avoid any open defeat by, the, by, by, by Ukraine. So the package that you mentioned today is going to uh, prolong the war, uh, obviously, prolong the hostilities. Um, uh, I can tell you, and you're probably all already aware of it, that Europe, uh, the EU, has its own package, not on the web, but they're discussing a much larger, something like 15 billion euro aid, both humanitarian and military, to Ukraine. And so um, it looks like this conflict is on its way to lasting a lot longer, because even though there are open channels for talk, and the talk around the nuclear plant is a talk, and in that sense is, is a positive development, uh, still everyone is still focusing on the war, on fighting, and on supporting the war effort. And that is not going to stop tomorrow. $15 billion from uh, from the EU would be way more than they have contributed so far, right? That, that to me, seems like it could really shift uh, or signal a shift in policy. It's a multi-aid package, which is not exclusively military. I think it's still under discussion, but it also involves helping uh, Ukraine pay for its debts because its budget just, you know, is deeply in a hole. So it's money to help keep the state afloat, uh, but it also contains humanitarian aid and so some form of military aid as well. And it would be the largest package that Europe uh, has uh, targeted at Ukraine. Yeah. I also wanted to talk a little bit more about France and Mali and, and French counterterrorism um, activities in Africa. We spoke to another guest on the show yesterday about Mali's accusations that France has been arming terrorist groups in the countries and, and undermining Mali's sovereignty and undermining its government, which, of course, you know, took power in a coup last year. Um, and I wanted to ask whether these accusations have sparked any kind of conversation in France about its role in Africa and the efficacy of its anti-terror uh, operations, or, you know, if the French population is as complacent as the United States when it comes to just accepting a never-ending war on terror that we are on one hand waging very seriously and on the other never really achieving much through. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a little bit of both, you know. Uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, um, uh, the the developments, the the increased or the continuing deteriorations of relations between Mali and France is always in the news, but it's never front page news. Um, mm -hmm. And the French have become fairly complacent with this long uh, uh, battle uh, uh, in Africa and against terrorism. Now. What should be uh, um, stated, I don't know what your guest yesterday said. Personally, I wouldn't put much credence to what the, the current government in Mali is claiming against France. Uh, that government was never recognized by France, which is why uh, relations have completely broken down now. Uh, there is no longer any diplomatic relation. They, they, they kicked out the French ambassador back in January. Uh, French intervention in Mali is technically over. There is not 
single French soldier on Mali soil today. Mali has turned over its security operation to uh, the Russian private military group Wagner. Uh, and obviously they intend, and I don't know if Wagner is behind the current letter sent to the UN Security Council or not, but obviously they want to give uh, Wagner an, uh, a free reign and have no one around to be able to check on what they've been doing. And mm -hmm. uh, indeed, France has been over there since 2013. Uh, it has lost over 50 uh, soldiers since then, uh, most of them in Mali, but not only in mm -hmm. Mali, because the, the fight against terrorism include other countries like Burkina Faso, Niger, uh, Chad, even uh, Mauritania. Overall, uh, it's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a defeat, but obviously it hasn't been a victory. When the French went in in 2013, they were called in by the current government uh, because it was about to fall to the mm -hmm. jihadists and other forms of rebels. And the French protected that government, took over most of the country. But Mali is extremely large. It's over a million uh, kilometers in, in, in square kilometers uh, in area. It is partly mountain, partly desert, partly savanna. It's extremely hard to control. It's very easy for rebel groups uh, or rebel groups to to uh, move about and and uh, harass uh, the local uh, security troops. And uh, when the French set up their operation Barkhane to try and check counter-terrorist uh, or terrorist operation in the whole sub-Saharan and Sahel region, they had a total of 5,000 soldiers for an area which was over 5 million square kilometers large. And that the discrepancy in the number and the magnitude of the area that they had to control was bound to, uh, to bring to, um, shall I say, the, the impossibility of ever defeating uh, the terrorists. Technically, mm -hmm. that operation is continuing, but it's continuing from Niger. Uh, France moved all its soldiers out of Mali back to a base in Niamey, which is the capital of Niger. It cut down its amount of troops by half. There were about 5,000, now it's down to 2,500, uh, but they're still working with other forces, some European forces, some U.S. logistical support, and, of course, local forces to try and keep on the fight against terrorism. Mali uh, has really succeeded in isolating itself, and it is simply clearly uh, a, a, another example of some African countries that have decided lately to switch their security alliances away from France, the old colonizer, the country that uh, they can't agree with because of the past. And, uh, you know, we have never come to terms with that past between 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 France and, and those African former colonies. There is still bad blood because of, of what happened over 60 years ago, but it still happened. And so some countries have decided to, to switch their alliances and uh, go back to Russia. And I say go back to Russia because Russians were present back in the Cold War, uh, back when it was the Soviet Union. And uh, mm -hmm. the Russians are very happy to uh, to comply. They're very happy to send soldiers. They're very happy to send military equipment. They don't ask for anything in return except money and influence. Uh, 
And uh, I'm afraid that when you look at it from the African point of view, within a few years, we'll find out that uh, it was another bad deal uh, uh, for African country, because the only way that those countries can pay for the services that they get from Russia is by letting them uh, use and exploit their natural resources. And the, 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 the tragedy of Africa is that the continent is extremely rich. But the wealth goes out of the continent, and Africans are extremely poor. And uh, I don't see that changing. Yeah, being exploited for their natural resources certainly is not going to be a, a new experience for any of these countries. No. Well, I mean, this is sort of—I think it has been interesting to watch a, a little bit of an attempt, uh, in Western media at least, to try to figure out why it was that so many African countries— declines to go along with the uh, push by the United States to organize a sort of um, comprehensive rebuke of Russia in the UN. Uh, it was, I think, a third of African nations declined yes. to take part in that vote. And while, yes. you know, we have seen American politicians travel to different parts of the continent and sort of carry the same old carrots and the same old sticks, uh, yes. we've had, I think, some effort in the media to actually cover well, the explanation some of these countries are offering for their choices, right? And so when the South African foreign minister said, you know, you don't seem to have a lot of regard for the, the human rights of Palestinians, uh, we see this hypocrisy and we, we think that this is an intolerable here. And the New York Times today has a, you know, not a terrible story about uh, Guinea-Bissau explaining, as you mentioned, that the Soviet Union's legacy there as a supporter of freedom fighters and the long memories some of these countries have of, you know, who who helped them in their fights against their uh, their colonizers. And so, you know, I, I wonder if the sort of collective cold shoulder that, that the United States got from a third of this continent, you know, I don't think it's going to change our policies in the short term, but it might actually uh, lead the American public to wonder a little bit about the, the results of our foreign policy uh, in Africa. And I, I wonder if you see this as, uh, you know, the beginning of a process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's obvious. There is a, uh, I won't call it a, a, a demand, but there is, uh, um, from the part of African country, a desire for an alternative to the so-called rules-based order that is headed by the U.S. They want an alternative world order. Uh, and uh, when 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 uh, you see China rising, when you see Russia coming, uh, coming back to Africa, and, and you see Africa turning to alternative sources of support besides Europe and the U.S., which are put in the same bag. They are both uh, the imperialist countries of different kinds of empires, but they're still put in, in, they're still the Western powers that were trying to not just help Africa through some kind of economic package and so forth, but also change Africa uh, by imposing their own, uh, shall I say, uh, uh, Western values on Africa. When they talk to Russia, when they talk to China, these powers do not ask for anything. They just come in, they do the job, and they leave Africans run their own business. And uh, this, 
this request for sovereignty, this request for respect. Very often, Africans will use the word respect when they talk in terms of bilateral relations. However poor they may be, however small countries may be, uh, they have uh, achieved their independence, sometimes through uh, great sacrifice. Uh, it was very bloody battle between the end of World War II and 1960, when most of those countries achieved independence. So they fought for that independence, and today they want that independence to, to be respected. And very much, and at least it's always been the case for France, France gave most of its those countries their independence, but it didn't fully relinquish controlled through back channels of most of those governments. And uh, 60 years later, those countries have gotten tired of this type of relationship, and that's why they're turning to another source. And uh, in, in looking at how some countries in, in Central Africa, in Western Africa, uh, have welcomed Chinese economic help for the past 20 years and are now turning to Russian security help is obviously a, a desire for a different world order uh, and a change of hierarchy in the way they deal with the rest of the world. Gerald Olivier, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where should our listeners go to find more of your work? Oh, they can read my blog if they read French. It's called France Amérique, le blog de Gerald Olivier. And I write for Atlantico and Causeur and a couple of other magazines. I'm also a research fellow at an institute here in Paris called IPSE, which is the Institute for uh, Prosperity and Security in Europe. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break now on Political Misfits and come back to talk about some of the primaries we saw this week and get into a little more fun domestic politics before we get out of here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Florida on Tuesday will hold its state primary to choose a Democratic opponent for Governor Ron DeSantis. It likely won't matter much. DeSantis is far ahead of the two leading Democrats in the polls, and it's a given that Representative Val Demings will be the nominee to face Senator Marco Rubio. But there are several other issues that are even more important than just the nominees in Florida. We're here in the studio with Ray Valencia. She is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome, Ray. Hi, nice to be back. Ray, um, Nikki Freed and Charlie Crist are both running for the Democratic nomination for governor against Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. Charlie Crist has a long and storied history in right, Florida. Republican. He, he was a Republican governor. Mm -hmm. He switched parties and became a Democrat, got himself elected to Congress after losing a race for Congress. Now he wants to be governor again, but this time as a Democrat. Nikki Freed has been criticizing Charlie Crist because at one time Crist was uh, was pro-life. Now he's pro-choice. And she's saying, look, if you want a Democrat, vote for me because I'm an actual Democrat, mm -hmm. not one that has flip-flopped back and forth between the Democrats and the Republicans. Charlie Crist is slightly ahead in the polls, 
But Ron DeSantis is just destroying both of them in the general election polls. What do you think? Well, I think, uh, you know, Charlie's kind of like Joe Biden. He's kind of boring and very much. And DeSantis is very dramatic like Trump. So it almost feel like a Biden versus Trump kind of matchup. I don't know. It just seems like a Republican switching over to a Democrat and having the pro pro life thing. It's it's going to be what's the difference? It's like between that and the Republicans. So I don't see him getting a lot. I don't know. Well, you know, what's funny to me is they're not really arguing about the issues. They're arguing about who's more electable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, that's usually the thing with the party leaders, right? They, yeah. they try to determine or look ahead, like who's electable. And that's where they put their resources. Florida hasn't had a Democratic governor in 20 years. Uh, there's no indication that they're going to have a Democratic governor now. Uh, like you say, Charlie Crist is very much in the mold of Joe Biden. He's 66 years old. I'm kind of forced to be for him because he's Greek American and <laughs> the, they raise a lot of money for yeah. Charlie Crist. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I, I'm not a big Charlie Crist fan. Yeah. Um, but there are some interesting things happening in Florida in terms of politics, you know, and and abortion is rising as a uh, an important issue. There's a recent case in Florida. Um, an appeals court upheld a lower court who denied a request by a 16-year-old uh-huh. who does not have yes. a parent to seek an abortion. She was 10 weeks along in the pregnancy, mm-hmm. which is well within the 15-week, mm-hmm. you know, allowance in according to Florida law. She was denied her, her request. It went up to appeals court. She was denied that request. So, you know, wrap your head around this. Sean and Michelle. I mean, think about this for a moment. So the court's saying she's not mature enough to have an abortion, but she's mature enough to have a baby and raise a child. Right. Right. And also think about this for a moment. What if she's almost 17? Let's say she was a mother already and had maybe a two-year-old. She would have full parental decision-making over that living child, right? Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have any kind of control over the pregnancy that she has right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a strange legal quagmire in terms of the logic. You have, almost have to twist yourself up like a, you know, a, a, a balloon animal to, to understand it. So, you know, there's some interesting polling happening. Republicans are polling to see how important abortion is. Mm-hmm. It's beginning to rise as a kitchen table issue, and it's beginning to worry a lot of Republicans. That's right. Um, Chuck Todd reported on his podcast just yesterday that when asked the question, you know, what's more important to you right now in this in this cycle, abortion or inflation and the economy? And Democrats are saying 90 percent abortion, 10 percent the economy and Republicans are 65 25. So uh, 65 economy. Yeah. Uh, and 25. 25. Yeah. So it's rising, you know, so this gap. I'm surprised. In yeah. I'm surprised for Republicans. It's all the way up to 25 it's, because just a few weeks ago it was at five. Yes, sir. That's pretty dramatic it's change. Very dramatic. So DeSantis, right? He's kind of going quiet on this thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. The current um, law is 15 weeks. So the question is, you know, will he come out and uh, support the idea of more restrictions or not? Right. So that's really interesting, right? So how it's affecting Florida politics. 
And, you know, interestingly enough, I don't remember if I saw it on my own or if Michelle had referred uh, me to it, was an article about how the states that are outlawing abortions are also the states that have the worst health care, the most difficult access to health care for poor people, Mm -hmm. the shortest life expectancies, highest mortality rate, highest mother's mortality rate. And also we're anticipating a lot of experts are anticipating a physician flight from states that have really high restrictions to states that do not. I mean, imagine trying to practice being mm-hmm. an OBGYN um, in a state mm-hmm. such as Texas, which raises uh, Texas. I want to talk about Texas. So uh, in politics right now, an activism turning into a movement in Texas, a Texas mother last year by the name of Nancy, Johnson, uh, Nancy Thompson, I was angry over Abbott's uh, reversal of the mask mandate. Mm-hmm. Kids had didn't need to wear masks. It's right. She has a an immune deficient child, and her doctor said, you know, keep the kid away from school without a mask on, and other kids without mask on. She was really upset about this. Didn't know what to do. Went to the state capitol with other mothers, and they were trying to figure out, oh, what are we going to do for signs? Uh, mothers against drunk driving was an inspiration. What can we do? How about Mothers Against Greg Abbott. MAGA. You could be the other MAGA. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he started running ads like a Facebook page. She started a Facebook group, had a few thousand followers. On her Twitter now, it's kind of moving up. She's got 75,000 followers. This organization has raised $400,000 in small donor money. They're running ads that are going viral in the state. And I want to play one for you. It's uh, on the issue of abortion. A couple is in meeting with a doctor. The pregnancy is not going well. And the name of the ad, and, they, and the doctor says, well, I can't really give you advice what to do. You're going to have to ask Greg Abbott. And then they say, who the F is Greg Abbott? So can we roll this, uh, this ad? Thank you for your patience. There's no easy way to say this, but your baby has a catastrophic brain abnormality. What, what does that mean? It means that parts of her brain didn't form. Your daughter, if she is to survive, will live only a matter of hours after birth. And during that time, she will experience a multitude of seizures and ultimately aspirate on her own bodily fluids. She will suffer. A decision will need to be made on termination. I wish I could tell you what to do, but there is only one person who can make this choice. How much time do I have? And that person is Greg. Greg? Who the f*** is Greg? (laughs) Yeah, let me just give him a call. (laughs) Hey, Greg. Dr. Robinson here. Listen, I've got a pregnancy that could... Yes? But I think this one is the... Yes, okay. Sure. Sure. That's pretty funny. Okay, I'll let them know. Oh, boy. Funny and scary at the same time. Oh, it's awful. It's horrifying, but it's pretty effective. Yeah, I I think that's effective. And and good on them for being able to do that with only $400,000. Oh, this was before. This was one of their first ads. This is when they had... You know, a little bit of money. Now they're running billboards and they want to take out ad buys. Wow. Uh, Greg Abbott is starting to run ads for governor and they want to raise money. They're on their Twitter right now. They said, we need a hundred grand for the, for an ad buy. Now, 
keep in mind, this is a group of mothers. Yeah. You know, so this isn't the party leadership. This isn't the Democratic Governors Association running the ads. Right. You know, which goes to show how much better activists are at politics than I think a lot of party leaders. I mean, it can really move the needle in terms of uh, turning out the vote. And they're working on that, too. They're working on voting registration and, yeah. I wonder what, you know. It's interesting to watch. I think more of these groups are going to emerge over in various states. I, I don't uh, I don't really have a handle on what the polls are showing uh, in in that race. So I've been Texas, looking at those gaps are closing as well. Um, I don't know what the latest poll numbers were, but Beto O'Rourke is closing in. I think the the gap was like seventeen or eighteen points, and now it's like eight to ten. Was the that last that poll. sounds right to me? I honestly I don't think Beto O'Rourke has a prayer. No, it's kind of like when we're talking about in Florida, yeah. right? Yeah, kind of similar, like doesn't have a chance closing the gaps, but it could make a difference in those lower ballot races. Right. right. Maybe for right. Senate, Congress. Let uh, me see if I can pull races. one up here. OK, got it. Uh, yeah. The um, the poll of polls, the, the most recent poll of polls has Abbott by six point eight percentage points, which is actually tightened up from from ten. Yeah, so it's getting... actually no, even more than that. Uh, Abbott had been ahead by fifteen, and now he's ahead by six point eight. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if O'Rourke can make a, a race of this. You know, for for a Democrat in Texas, he's about as good as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And um, Abbott's made mistakes. He's not personally popular, but I just don't think that the Democrats are. Are competitive in Texas. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We'll see. You know, I keep thinking about like the House races and the Senate. The Republicans may not fare as well as they anticipate. Right. There's this talk that, you know, they should be doing better considering the economy and Joe Biden's Mm -hmm. uh, low approval numbers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And I wonder if the Republicans, are they going to blame Trump at the end of this? Right. Are they going to look at him as being the reason why they didn't do as well? And well, what impact that could have? That that's entirely possible. You know, already we're seeing we're seeing articles being written about the fact that that the people that Trump wanted to run for the Senate in Georgia, for example, Herschel Walker, Pennsylvania, Doctor Oz, that nut in uh, Arizona whose mm-hmm. name escapes me, Mastriano. No, no Arizona no. Masters. Masters, thank you, and JD Vance in Ohio. Ohio. Uh, they're all behind in the polls. Mm-hmm. And there, you said last week or earlier in the week that the uh, RNC is withdrawing money. Withdrawing from the, the money. Because they don't see them as being a... That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. So bears watching. There well, was something... interesting. Like all this love for Trump and following, oh, who is he going to endorse? And, you know, if they yeah. go down... Yeah, it's going to hurt. <laughs> it's gonna hurt. Um, there was something else that DeSantis did, too, that uh, was extraordinarily disturbing, I thought. Mm-hmm. He uh, a few months ago, he announced a new elections crime unit, right, with the state police. So um, the this new unit is it answers directly to the office of the governor and their job is to arrest people who have voted illegally. Right now, there are millions and millions of voters in Florida. Well. This morning, they announced their first arrests. They've arrested 
20 people. All 20 have been previously incarcerated for murder or rape, which are the two categories that are exempt from getting your voting Mm -hmm. rights back. They either didn't know it or Mm -hmm. didn't care or whatever. They registered to vote and they voted. Well, this happens a lot. You know, people get released from prison or jail and they're off paper. They finish their parole, probation. And there may be exceptions to this, but they go and apply again and, and, you know, it's a problem. Register to vote and it's illegal. Well, DeSantis is saying that this is an incredible victory Mm. for democracy because, you know, this is voter fraud, he said. And then opponents are saying, look, you know, 20 million people voted in Florida. Mm -hmm. Well, not 20 million. Yeah, Mm -hmm. close to 20 million people voted in Florida or whatever it is. And you caught 20 people out out of 20 million. So this is a failure. And a waste of taxpayers' money. And it further proves Mm -hmm. that our elections are actually pretty well run. Pretty well run. Yeah, Yeah, they're pretty well run. Um, He doesn't care. And in the event that he's president, people around him, this guy Michael McDonald, an expert on voting, are saying that he's going to seek to make this like a national thing where there are going to be these squads of federal cops all around the country trying yeah. to grab people who uh, shouldn't be voting. Well, there's been reporting, too, of these auditors. Uh, it, it's not known who's financing them or how they're—it's loosely organized, but folks going around canvassing neighborhoods, asking people, voters, you know, how did you vote? And do you think that the election, the last election, was valid? Right. I mean, it's kind of a form of voter intimidation, and, and there's questions about, you know, it's legality. I mean, they knock on someone's door, how did you vote? You trust the election system. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so exactly. They're doing all kinds of crazy things. We're going to have a lot more to talk mm-hmm. about uh, next week, especially on Florida, because we're going to have, of course, a better idea of uh, who's going to be running for these big races against DeSantis mm-hmm. and against Rubio. We'll have some new polls from 538 and com, And uh, I want you to stick around for okay. News of the Weird. Absolutely. Would miss it. Michelle, are you ready for News of the Weird? Oh, born ready, John. It was actually pretty good this week, too, I thought. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's Friday, and it's the end of the show, so that means it's time for News of the Weird, where we tell you about some of the more offbeat stories in the, in the news, and today we're going to start in San Francisco, and the reason I wanted to start with this story is because it reminded me of my own family, okay. and I'll get to that in a minute. So at a funeral on August 6th at Rolling Hills Memorial Park in Richmond, California, a family brawl broke out after the deceased's son and daughter started arguing. Uh, police were called to the scene around 1.30 uh, p.m. where 20 family members abandoned the service to fight with each other. And I mean like fist fight, duking it out kind of serious fight. The 36-year-old brother got into a vehicle and, quote, attempted to drive toward his sister in an aggressive way. He tried to run her over, is what he did. Wow. But but instead, he struck another female uh, uh, relative, and he sent her to the hospital with what are being described as non-life-threatening injuries. Um, He also managed to knock over several headstones and smash several vases. You know, those really hard, yeah. yeah, urn vases, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he broke a water main, which then caused the the grave to fill with water. Uh, the coup de gras was no, knocking. Sorry, the 
grave filled up the grave with water? <laughs> yeah. It Come filled on. the grave with Guys. water. This is kind of a desert area, too. I don't know if you've ever been to Richmond, California. Yeah, it's it's dry. It's, desert, it's dry yeah. up there. Yeah. Uh, the coup de grace was he actually knocked over the casket with the car, but thank God the body did not fall out of the casket. So when the brother was finally uh, brought out of the car, taken out of the car, someone uh, hit him with a cane to subdue him. And uh, they were able to, you know, hold him down until the cops finally arrived. The brother was later charged with felony assault with a deadly weapon and vandalism. It doesn't say whether they were able to, you know, bury the relative or I I guess they would have to pump that grave out first. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's terrible. I shouldn't laugh. That's terrible. The reason I said it reminded me of my family is because I I come from a very, very large family on my mom's side. My mom had eight brothers and sisters. I have 27 first cousins just on my mom's side. And we were all very close, big, loud Greek family. And when our grandfather died, uh, it was it was rough. It was very emotional. We loved him. He was a good guy. He was a good he was a good time. Charlie. Right. He was a lifelong alcoholic, and all he wanted to do was drink and dance and sing and go out with women, and he was just a party guy. <laughs> so um, he died, and it was so emotional that my that one of my cousins—I'm the oldest male cousin. There, I have three female cousins who are older than I, but one of the female cousins jumped into the grave. Now, she did oh. it. She, oh, no. she, yeah, she did it. Not because she was so overcome with emotion. That's what she wanted people to think. She did it because she's a drama queen and she was just trying to attract everybody's attention. And we were all so on to her that we just left her in the grave. And then finally, she, yeah, it's like, well, I'm not going to pull her out. I'm not going to pull her out either. And finally she she says, well, somebody please pull me out of here. And and my mom and one of her sisters pulled her out. I said, you should have left her in there. Anyway. That was number one. Okay. (laughs) Number two. Angel Domingo of Toronto is a big fan of trading items on resale websites. And I'm going to interrupt myself here. I have a fan, a fan. I have a friend who actually traded a half eaten jar of mayonnaise on one of these sites. I think he got like a pen for it or something. It's just this weird hobby that people have. So when this guy moved into a new home and he found a single cheese stick in the refrigerator, it was a no-brainer for him. He bought a billboard in a square in Toronto, and he offered up this black diamond string cheese as a trade. Best offer. Here's a cheese stick. I'll take the best offer. Okay. He says, this is probably the strangest thing I've ever had to offer up. Uh, I guess some people really wanted it because indeed he was able to trade it for two Persian cats. What? Yeah. Somebody gave him two cats for his cheese stick. I would be very suspicious of those two cats. (laughs) Someone's just trying to get rid of cursed cats that he's been saddled with. And is like, you're not the the rules Satan made about who has to, you know, care for these cats. So you can't give them away. You can only sell or trade them. And this is what he's found. That's my official prediction for what's actually behind this transaction. I wonder if those cats are stolen. Yeah, that could also be. Uh, stolen curse, stolen you know. Persian cats, yeah. <laughs> there was an article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette a couple of months ago about this guy, about a guy who did something similar. Um, he wanted to see what he could get for a paper clip. 
right? So he offered, he went onto one of these sites. He says, I have a paperclip. I want to trade it. And somebody gave him a pencil for the paperclip. And then he took the pencil and he traded it for a pen. Oh, and he yeah. took the yeah. right pen. He traded it for something else. It took him a year and a half. But finally, he ended up with a Ferrari and he traded it for a house. And he says, the key is that you have to be willing to walk away from the deal. Mm -hmm. Right? He said, you always have to get something better than what you're giving. And so he ended up, and he's like, should I keep the Ferrari or should I trade it for the house? Because, you know, the house is probably in some crappy neighborhood. What's a Ferrari go for? A couple of hundred grand. Oh, who knows? Yeah, maybe, maybe it was a good house. I don't know. I don't know. House, gonna, is always, house is probably going to appreciate in value. The car is just going down in value from the minute you buy it. So most, obviously most likely the house. Most hey, likely. Can I tell you a quick story, John? Yes, please. I think I've put it in at the bottom there. If you can, if you no, see it. No, it's a different one. I know Ooh. the one that I saw that when I saw the bottom, if we get to that, it's fine. But I think we, we talked about this on the show last month when it happened about Denver police firing into a crowd of people outside bars because they, they said someone was armed. Someone was being threatening and injuring a bunch of people. Do you remember this? Yeah, I sure do. So finally, after about a month of pressure, Denver police have released footage of what actually happened and you can go and watch it. And they are apparently uh, investigating um, one or more of the officers involved. Um, But yeah, this was people, people online are joking, but it's not untrue. This was a, a mass shooting committed oh by Denver God. police who injured six innocent bystanders bystanders when they fired at this man who had not fired at them. And you can now see the footage of this man who did. He did have a loaded weapon. Uh, police have their guns come out. They shouted him. They have their guns pulled on him. He tosses this weapon away and then one cop fires at him. Then the other, another cop fires at him, shoots him, and they manage to also, again, shoot six other people oh who were God. in this very crowded street that was, you know, just letting patrons out at closing time from a bar. So I remember that we had talked about the incident on the show. Yeah. Now you can actually watch it. Uh, you know, probably worth mentioning that this man's weapon was never fired. He put his hands up as soon as the the officers say, put your hands up. He puts his hands up. He tosses away the, away the weapon, and then they shoot him My and a goodness. bunch of other people. I hope heads are going to roll over that. We'll see. How, how about this? Somebody to whom I used to be very close okay. and no longer am was from Butler County, Ohio. I hate Butler County, Ohio. That's where Cincinnati is, right? It's awful down there. Okay. The the mother of a six-year-old Butler County, Ohio boy was arrested last week and charged with endangering a child and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Remember, six years old. Okay. The incident started when Olivia Eversall, a worker at a marathon gas station in Hanover Township, just north of Cincinnati, uh, saw the boy emerge from a car holding a Smirnoff ice. Mm-hmm. Eversall asked the boy, do you know that you're drinking a beer? He replied, yep, this is me and my mommy's favorite beer. We drink oh, it all no. the time. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Eversall called the police. But when deputies arrived, the mother, Victoria Hampton, 26, told them that it was an accident and she drove off with the boy. But when officers followed her home, 
they found the boy riding a scooter while holding another Smirnoff ice. Oh, no. Yeah. The cop said, you've got to be on your toes because you never know what's going to happen. I guess the mom was arrested or at least spoken to. Wow. There is a... (laughs) I used to teach English in Taiwan, and so I had other friends who were also English teachers in Taiwan. And um, one of my friends had a kindergarten student who was who was you know we probably had like a hyperactivity disorder or something. Uh-huh. Was always really amped and was kind of a problem sometimes. But some mornings he would come in much more subdued and a little loopy, but but much calmer. And she asked him one morning. Somehow came up like what he had had for breakfast, and he said wine. He said his parents, his parents had given him some wine for breakfast, and she was thinking, is this family actually feeding this child wine to get him to chill out for school? Because oh I feel God. like there are more responsible ways to tackle this. I have no idea if it was actually true, but it is pretty. It was a, a funny video of this kid saying, yeah, I had wine for breakfast. I'm a oh, little bit sleepy now. Oh, my God. I know I shouldn't laugh, but it's because it's probably terrible. But it was it was also pretty funny. That's pretty bad. Well, you have sent me a fascinating article from the Daily Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you want to go over it? Oh, I mean, this one, I don't know if it's really so much news of the weird as just news of the sad. Yeah, uh, this it's pretty sad. It's, this is part- not a funny news of the weird mm-hmm. installment. This is. Yeah, I guess it can be crazy. weird. Uh, just said this is no, it's a woman who's charged with murder. The headline is a woman charged with murder after kiss with inmate during visitation goes horribly wrong. And we can all guess what happened. Uh, this woman came to visit a prisoner in Tennessee uh, and she has been charged with murder after the inmate died shortly after she kissed him. Yep. Uh, she's accused of smuggling drugs into the jail and uh, passing him a balloon filled with methamphetamines, which then must have broken. And he died of uh, died of an overdose, uh, not very much longer. And yeah. so, you know, I don't think that these charges are necessarily uh, I mean, this is. This is murder or manslaughter, you know, like right. wh- whether or not it was a, an accident. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was sort of hoping. I don't know. When I saw the headline, I was hoping for something a little bit less, less grim and sad. But I got to say, this, this is actually quite common. There was a kid when I was in prison. There was a kid in my housing unit. I say kid. He was, I don't know, 22, 23 years old. And he was the son of a Presbyterian minister. Uh, But the kid just loved, loved, loved drugs. And, uh, you know, that led to drug smuggling and crossing state lines and it became federal and his parents cut him off. So he would he would do people's laundry for one bag of mackerel uh, a week. And I hired him to do my laundry. Uh, A lot of people did because that was his only source of income. It was his side hustles, what they call it. And he was complaining to me one day that uh, his parents wouldn't give him any money at all for commissary. And so he had to uh, he had to do people's laundry. And he said uh, they they say he said indignantly, they think I'm going to buy drugs with it. Can you believe that? And I said, dude, (laughs) you're high right now. What are you going to do? Uh, That's what I told him. I said, you're high right now. And he goes, well, that doesn't mean I shouldn't have commissary. But this is how he used to get his drugs. His wife I mean, would come in and kiss him and pass the drugs to him. 
But I mean, this is a conundrum and this is something, I mean, this is a much bigger issue than we can get into in the 30 seconds we have left, but like, <laughs> know, you know, know people who going, write thoughtfully about the, the opioid crisis and the drug crisis will also say like, people also have pain, you know? And so mm-hmm. we can't, right. um, we can't decide that just because someone has some kind of addiction issue, uh, that they don't also have pain that should be managed. Right. Yeah, and there's that's exactly right. To just d- dismiss whatever genuine health concerns uh, patients who are labeled as drug seeking might have. And so right. again, seems like a, the, the quickest solution that I can say here before we have to close the show out is that we just need more time with our doctors. Right. Indeed anyway. we do. Indeed That's all we, we have do. time for for this week on Political Misfits. I want to say thanks to all our guests. Thanks to all our producers and engineers. Thanks to Ray Valencia for coming in, as always, for this uh, politics segment. And on behalf of Ray, uh, behalf of John Kiriakou and Ray and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next week. <laughs>